Open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 15. Psalm 15. You might at first thought wonder why this is the first sermon in an Advent series. I hope it becomes clear at some point during my sermon today. Psalm 15, begin reading of verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, and who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He or she who does these things shall never be moved. And the grass withers and the flowers fade in this good word. And I hope you see how good it is endures to today and forever. And so Psalm 15 opens with that pivotal, that penetrating question. And that question is, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? It's not the only time a question like that is asked. Psalm 24 which we expounded in the hymn that we opened our service with, it says it in a similar way. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? The sense is who's qualified to do so? Who meets the conditions to enter God's presence? And Old Testament scholars would call both these psalms entrance liturgies. Who gets to enter? Who gets to be at the top of God's mountain and worshiping in his presence? Who gets admittance into that kind of fellowship? And we mirror this in our own worship services when we read a portion of God's law to tell us what God is like as we enter God's presence. What are the requirements? to enter and be close to God. Isaiah 33, 14 says it in a similar way, if not even more like awe-inspiring. It says, who among us can dwell with consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burning And so that way of asking the question presses into what Holiness is under the image of fire, its glory and majesty and beauty, its utter purity that burns off any impurity and therefore is a terrible danger to sinners. Who can enter such a God's presence, worship such a God, be with? This God welcomed into his presence. Just think about it. 
And yet we know that David doesn't ask the question in Psalm 15 because he wants to run away from God or stay distant from God. We know David's heart. He asks the question because he longs to be with God, aches to be right there. We know how strong his desire is. And David just manifests the deepest seated longing of the heart of mankind in general. Ecclesiastes 3 says, God, you've put eternity in man's heart. All men and women, boys and girls. He's planted eternity in the heart of man. Paul David Tripp says it this way, everyone cries out for eternity. They just don't know it. And so he goes on to say, the little boy choking back his tears because he's been bullied is crying out for eternity. The wife devastated by her husband's adultery cries out for eternity. The old man who's dealing with the pain and weakness and loneliness of old age is crying for eternity. The lonely teenager who just wants to be understood and accepted is crying for eternity. The worker newly reamed out by his boss for something that wasn't his fault is crying out for eternity. We could say it less dramatically or acutely, but just as real. The grind of doing your calling day in and day out, wearying yourself and not seeing the fruit you want and longing to see it is a cry for eternity. As Tripp would say, somehow, some way, we all long for a better world. Or as Mark Twain said it, you don't know quite what it is you do want, but it just fairly breaks your heart. You want it so. This ambiguous ache for more in the heart of man, it's humanity's cry for eternity, but even more according to our psalm today, it's God himself we want. In all our longings, he's who we really long for, to sojourn in his tent, to dwell in his holy hill. Augustine said it maybe most memorably in the fifth century, God, you stir us up to take delight in your praise for you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless till it finds its rest in you. Or Blaise Pascal in the 17th century, a wonderful, memorable quote, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. And yet after such a great number of years, no one without faith has reached the point to which all continually look. What is it then that this desire and this inability proclaim to us, but that there was once in man a true happiness of which there now remained to him only the mark and empty trace which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled 
by an infinite and immutable object that is only by God himself. To which as people have sought to summarize that down, God has made a God-shaped vacuum in everyone's heart that he alone can fill. So mankind aches for God. David manifests that for us. And throughout history, mankind is believed God dwells on the mountains. The thought was that the mountains are closer to the heavens, so God or the gods must live there. Therefore, mountains as places of worship in the history of the world is almost universal. And think of the ziggurats, the man-made mountains in Mesopotamia or even in Egypt or Mount Hermon for the Canaanites or Mount Olympus for the Greeks, the sacred mountain temples for Hinduism and Buddhism that we see on TV on occasion, Machu Picchu for the Incas. And furthermore, scripture reveals the truth that God himself accommodates himself to this pervasive human idea, for really God embedded it in the heart of man. And so we look at scripture, and the mountain of God is a huge biblical theme. Eden itself was a mountain temple. God exiles Adam and Eve from there when they sin, From that point on, the story of redemption is about getting back to God's holy mountain. At the Exodus, God leads his people to Sinai. Later, God leads his people to Zion. And the vision of God's great restoration, which encompasses the time of Messiah, always speaks of a mountain. Even today, go up on the mountain and proclaim the good news. So with that in mind, many today with this mountain image in mind, would say something like this. All religions of the world are superficially different, but fundamentally the same. They're just different pathways that start at the base of the mountain and wind their way up to the top where they all converge in the same place. God's tent, God's holy place. So you follow your religion and I'll follow mine. You climb your way and I'll climb my way. You pursue your holiness, I'll pursue mine. You practice your rituals, I'll practice mine. You clean up your life your way, I'll clean up my life my way. And we'll all meet each other in our different ways, along our different pathways up at the top in the presence of God. And so we come to Psalm 15. And in isolation on its own, it seems to confirm such an idea. Is religion about climbing up the mountain to reach God? Is it about meeting the demands, satisfying the requirements for fellowship with God? And since the requirements and the qualifications listed are so similar to many other religions in our world, does that suggest that biblical religion is only superficially different but fundamentally the same? Well, first, let's just look at the response to the question. The response to that question lists certain qualifications. And these are the conditions for gaining access to God's presence. And we need to all pause before that for just a moment and let it sink in. These are the qualifications. 
And it's not even an exhaustive list, it's a representative list. Psalm 24 and Isaiah 33 say it a bit differently. The point is, really, it points us to all God's moral injunctions to us. It points to the whole Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, the summary of the law. It points to such penetrating phrases as, be perfect, for I am perfect. Be holy, for I am holy. Can't let ourselves lower the nature and character of God, nor lower the qualifications for admittance into God's presence. The gospel starts here. So what are these conditions? We'll look at them in six points because it's six parallel lines in Hebrew poetry. The first is, he walks blamelessly and does what is right. What's that first Qualification, it has to do with character. And it's the overall one. It's the person, we could boil it down, that lives like the Proverbs counsel and exhort. Well, what's the second one? And speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue. Well, this one goes to conversation, the use of your mouth. A person who speaks truth and and doesn't gossip. Well, what's the third parallel phrase? And does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against a friend. We move from conversation to conduct here. He doesn't hurt people. Like he's not hurting people. In the fourth parallel phrase, in whose eyes a vile person is despised but who honors those who fear the Lord. It has to do with values. In our very tolerant age, we don't like phrases like despising a vile person. But nevertheless, the point is not to show contempt for anybody. The point is the values expressed by such people, and we are people to be esteeming godliness, the company of godly people, worthy role models, the right kinds of heroes. Fifth, who swear to his own hurt and does not change. We move to commitment. It's a person who makes promises and vows and keeps them even when it's inconvenient and even when it's tough. You think of that modern hymn, we feast at the house of Zion, all the vows we've broken and betrayed. And six parallel phrase, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent and has to do with contentment. It's a person who doesn't take advantage of another's misfortune by usury or bribery. So it's not a greedy person, but an open-handed, generous person. So, So who can sojourn in God's tent? Who shall dwell on his holy hill? It's this person. It's not a person that's better at it than someone else or a person who's getting better at it. It's the person who fulfills these conditions. That person gets the Psalms assurance. He who does these things will never be moved or never be shaken. And so we ask at the end of the day, Is biblical religion really just the same as the world's religions? Do we climb the mountain to get right with God?
And if that's the case, then everyone here today, we know we fall way short. And we just can't and don't do these things. And so last summer, some of our family went to Yosemite and we went and stood at the base of El Capitan. And I've always wanted to do that. We touched the base of that sheer rock face and looked up 3,000 feet. And you just wonder, who on earth can scale such a sheer rock face all the way up? And yet, even as the question is in our minds, there are two crazy teams of climbers inching up the rock face. And of course, we probably all watched Free Solo and been stunned by somebody who would do such a thing. But the issue is, God's law is so much more severe than El Cap. It's a sheer rock face, infinitely high and utterly unscalable. There are no outliers that are able to get up that cliff. So we say, thanks be to God that that's not the case. Biblical religion is only superficially the same as the world's religions while being fundamentally different. And so we come again to Psalm 15 and we don't look at Psalm 15 on its own. It's an integral part of the whole story of redemption, the whole beautiful story of what God does to get us up the mountain. See, the reason the people could look at themselves and recite a list of qualifications knowing they didn't meet them is because in Jerusalem there would be sacrifices made to atone for their sins. It's that they knew the principle embedded in the Ten Commandments that God had already redeemed them by his grace before he ever gave them the law. And that's why you and I can recite the law of God entering into worship knowing there's the comfort of the gospel. And let's just look at the wonderful clue given in Psalm 15 itself because at verse one it says, God's holy hill and God's tent and those are references to the Exodus in Mount Sinai first. And just two quick things there. At things God taught his people at Mount Sinai first is the people couldn't go up the mountain. And God called Moses up the mountain. They had to remain at the base. And God brought Moses up and he kept bringing him up and sending him down and bringing him up and sending him down. The people embedded that formative moment in their nation's history is that I can't get up the mountain. I have to have a mediator to take me up and represent me before God. And then at Sinai, God commands them to fabricate him a tent, a tabernacle. And the issue is that same word is the very same word that's used for the tents that every family lived in. They all live in tents. Scattered at the base of the mountain is a nation dwelling in tents. And so that word tent is high and lofty. It's the sanctuary of the living and true God, but it's also homey and lowly. It's God's little house among his people, with his people, it's Emmanuel, God with us. 
such that Dr. Davis would say as if Yahweh simply couldn't get close enough to his people. And so the commentator Wilcox says on the commands of Psalm 15, they can't be conditions for people who want to belong to God, but descriptions of people who do already belong to God because they, God has invited them by grace into his presence. They're already his redeemed by grace. Therefore, not so much preconditions as promises of what I'm gonna do in your life because you belong to me. And all this prepares for Christmas. Christmas proves beyond a shadow of a doubt what the whole weight and momentum of the Old Testament anticipates that, that God doesn't stay on top of the mountain and demand us to climb up to him. Rather, the radical truth of biblical religion is that God comes down the mountain as Emmanuel God with us. And it's because of this that Christianity is only superficially the same, but fundamentally different than any other religion in the world. The true God comes down. So C.S. Lewis's quote, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this, exhibits this, or results from this. Psalm 15.1 points towards John 1.14. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, he pitched his tent among us. We couldn't go up to the tent of God, so he pitched his tent among us. And John is evoking Psalm 15, one. God's dwelling in tents among his people at Sinai prepares for importance towards what had to happen for our salvation and nothing less that God himself would truly come down the mountain. And to the astonishing extent of becoming one with us in order to suffer the penalty for our failure to meet the conditions and in order to fully fulfill the conditions in our place. Such that God the Son comes down and becomes man in order to lead a blameless life to speak the truth from his heart, to do good to his neighbor, to esteem godliness, to keep his covenant promises to his own heart, knowing a cross lay before him and everlasting burnings, and to be lavishly generous, even giving his life for us, he who was rich yet for your sake became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. The gospel is that Jesus did all of this to a superlative degree with you in mind. He came down the mountain and accomplished all this for us so that he might lead us up, but not just lead us up, he carries us up in him. 
up the mountain safely, securely into God's presence, his holy hill in his tent. And in this way, he does so to satisfy your heart's true desire. He gives you rest in God and fills up in you that God-shaped vacuum which you have. And this and nothing less than this is the story of Christmas. And we're gonna reflect on it more in John 1 of the next three weeks, but what we see and what Christmas proclaims to us is that God does the unimaginable. He comes down the mountain and joins himself inextricably to you. And this means that we are far more sinful than we ever fathomed because it took God. But we are far more loved than we ever dared dream. He was willing to do it. And so ultimately Psalm 15 proclaims the good news because Jesus came down the mountain for us to fulfill all these conditions by faith in him you can know that you will never be moved. You're unshakable. You're safe and secure in such a redeemer who satisfied all the conditions for you. Who shall sojourn in God's tent? Who shall dwell in his holy hill? He who has this man, this man portrayed in Psalm 15 as his or her mediator and savior. This is the good news of Christmas. And is this where your heart is right now? And may it be, amen. Let's stand.